For those back from holiday, it's really great to see you all again. Um, for some of you, I know 2019 might have been a tough year, and uh, you might be like, yeah, it, it might be you're looking at 2020 from a place of exhaustion uh, for some of you. But I want you to know that we worship a God who operates outside of time, and He's not bound by our calendars, but He is also the God who created seasons. And so we go through things, we go through seasons, all for a reason. You see, God invented seasons so that things would grow. And you might have been through a period of growth, but there are also periods of incredible blessing and harvest, and life is full of seasons. And uh, last year might have been a bad season. Seasons change, and we serve a God of hope. We serve a God of hope, and we're currently in week two of a series called Filled to Fill. We need to be filled in order to fill others and fill the city with all that God has for it. And, and we at Common Ground, we passionately committed to serving the city of Cape Town in these five ways over the next five years. We want to reach more people with the message of Jesus Christ. We want to start more congregations and create more access points for people to hear the message of Jesus Christ. We want His compassion and justice to be ministered to those who need it across our city. And we also want to be equipped to take Jesus' ways and teachings into our workplace, and we want to be a part of strengthening other churches around Cape Town, especially in under-resourced areas. I was trying to move away from the mic and it's going to backfire on me, hey? Okay, from the speaker, I mean. So what we want to do today is we want to become the kind of people that doing all of that comes quite naturally, that comes quite supernaturally. God wants to fill us personally and then we can fill the city with the life message and fame of Jesus. We want to be filled to fill. So that's the name of our opening series, Filled to Fill. But filled with what? Of course, we want to be filled with God. We want to be filled with His Word. We want to be filled with His Spirit. But to be even more clear, we want to be filled with faith. And we want to be filled with hope. And last week, Colin did just such a great job of encouraging our faith. And he chatted about Abraham and Sarah and how uh, even though they, didn't, they weren't perfect, they didn't do everything perfectly, they had faith. And because of that faith, God was able to change the world and do incredible, incredible things just with the smallest amount of faith. And this week, I hope to fill, I hope to fill you with hope so that you can be contagious in your hope and you can go and, and fill others across the city with hope. And wow, I mean, are we desperate for hope? We follow the state capture trials. We, we look at the load shedding that's gutting the economy. We're surrounded by poor on our doorstep. In our families, there's sickness, there's cancer. There's tensions between the USA and, and Iran now. And, and Brexit and all that unfolding, all those uncertainties that are out there. Uh, where is the hope? What is Donald Trump going to tweet next? We need better leadership because leadership inspires hope. We need a healing influence and healing power in our land and in our lives. Where's the hope? Now, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City, 
and uh, he's got a church there, but uh, he just has got an incredible resource of podcasts and messages that are online. If you're driving in traffic and you want to hear some great message, download one of his podcasts. They're awesome. So this message that I'm going to share, a lot of it's been inspired by one of his sermons from long ago, and uh, I hope that what God said to Tim Keller and subsequently what God said to me God's going to say something incredible to you that's really going to fill you with hope and and really inspire you. Let's read from today's text. We're going to Isaiah 40. We're going to jump around a bit, but let's start at verse number one. Comfort, comfort my people, says our God, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley should be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on the mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid, say the towns of Judah. Here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, because my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in, but those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah 40 would be a famous passage of scripture even if Handel hadn't scored one of the greatest pieces of music in the history of the world to it because it's a motivating and inspiring passage and it's packed with mind-blowing, life-changing hope. It starts out really dramatically, which I like. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way. Make way. There's this voice. You can't see who it is. Did you notice that? It's just a voice, and it's calling out, and you know something big is about to happen. It's very cinematic. When I run a marathon, you can see on the roads, the the traffic officers pull up to all the, 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 the junctions, and they park their car right in the middle of the road, and they get out, and they start to block traffic, and on, on the highway on-ramps, they start to block traffic, and disgruntled drivers get out the car, and they're like, what are you doing? I just need to be over there. I, I just, can you just move? Can, I just want to... And then they see the first runner come around the corner or over the hill, and then there are a few more. They're 12, 17, and they start to look at this, 
and then there's 100, and then there's 800, and then there's 12,000, and these frustrated drivers are going, go, 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 you can do this, you've got it, you can get to the finish line, and they catch the spirit of the race, and you see the traffic officers knew that something big was coming, and they had to prepare the way. In Jurassic Park, the first one, the, the, the really good one. <laughs> Don't worry to see the others. They're these cups on the dashboard of a car, and they start to tremble, and the water starts to ripple. Everybody's seen it's going, yeah, I remember that scene. Because you know something big was coming. Something big is coming. And Isaiah shows here that something greater than the world has ever seen is coming because it doesn't just stop traffic. It doesn't just make water ripple. It brings down mountains. Mountains are coming down. So who's coming? Who's coming? Isaiah tells us in this messianic prophecy that there is hope because, number one, a king is coming. This king is coming with authority to make things whole again. This king, number two, is Jesus Christ, and he comes as the warrior shepherd. How do we respond to the coming of this king? We respond with obedience. We respond by not worrying. We respond with hope. Point number one, the king is coming. Verses three to four, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. Anybody who had heard or read these words in ancient times would know that royalty was coming, would know that an emperor or a king was coming through the land or that part of the kingdom. When a king went to another part of his kingdom or a place that he had, hadn't been to in a long while, he didn't just use the regular roads. He didn't just use the regular byways and meander his way through the kingdom the way normal people would, but rather boulevards were built for him. Highways were built so that the king could go from one part of his kingdom to the other. There's a historical inscription uh, from ancient Babylon and uh, Babylonia, and it's an announcement that the king is going to another part of his kingdom. And uh, the announcement goes like this. Make his way good. Renew his road. Make straight his path. Hew him out a new track. And then everybody in the kingdom would go about getting busy making that happen. In other words, you built a new highway when the king was coming. The king didn't just use any road. The building of highways, this building of boulevards when the king was coming was symbolic of uh, kingship, and, uh, and it's symbolic in two ways. First, it symbolized the authority of the king. The idea of knocking down every barrier, the idea of bridging every gap, it symbolized just as we get rid of the ex resistance to the king's physical presence, so we need to get rid of all the resistance to that king's authority, to the authority of the king. We're not supposed to hold anything back. We're not supposed to resist his lordship in any way, but rather get about making a clear path for it. Secondly, it represented the incredible healing influence of true kingship. We know that under a good coach, a rugby team flourishes. 
We know that under a good leader, a business flourishes. Under a bad leader, the business does not. Under a good president, a country flourishes for all citizens. Under a bad president, people suffer. If the leader has the competence and the character, has the unselfish goodwill to lead that group properly, what magic. It's amazing how that group thrives on every level. If you're a parent, if you're a small group leader or a community leader, or if you're a king, when authority is rightfully exercised, it is like rain on a dry field for anybody that's under that authority. And that's the idea. The idea is that the king comes to impassable wilderness where there are chasms and mountains, and after he leaves, it's now possible. The king comes to a desolate, uninhabitable wilderness, and now it is habitable. Therefore, the reason you build this new road in these desolate and dangerous places and you make them safe, it was not only a symbolism of the absolute authority of the king, but of the healing influence in the wake of a true king, a real king, a king that brings hope. So you know, you, you know when you hear this voice calling, a king is coming, but not only that, like, let's, let's read this again. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When you read verses 3 to 5, Isaiah is trying to say to us, this is not just the normal king. The language of Isaiah here bursts the banks. Do you see, when human kings come, we build bridges over valleys. When this king comes, the valley vanishes. The deep crevice, the canyon is filled in. When this king comes, mountains come down. What manner of king is this? You see, Isaiah is drawing on one of the deepest hopes of the human race. Isaiah is saying the whole world is like an uninhabitable wilderness. The whole world is a desert. There is death, there's disease, there's war, there's poverty, there's strife, there's brokenness all around us of every description. The whole world is like this because it is under incompetent managers, us. Because our lives are under incompetent leaders, us. But when the cosmic and ultimate king comes, there will be ultimate healing. Where is this king coming from? Let's look at verse 5. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind will see it together. Now, uh, how in the world can the whole world see the coming of the king together? Only if this king is out of this world. So what Isaiah is saying here is that there's a true king coming and he has absolute authority. He brings absolute healing and is coming from out of this world. Now that's not a new concept. 
Many legends through the generations say there's hope, there's a king who's going to come, he's going to come with wisdom and compassion and power in such a way that all our problems will be over. So many legends are rooted in this kind of hope, this idea, there's a king coming and he's going to put everything right. And so many of you are thinking here, well, that's just the fairy tale, isn't it? I've heard it before, but it'll never happen because no earthly king is ever that good. No earthly king is ever that just. So this is fiction. But you see, it's not just a fairy tale. And the evidence you need is in your own heart. It comes from the sense of goodness, of right and wrong, of justice, of compassion and empathy built into our hearts that is not natural. It's not of this world. Let me illustrate that point for you. Um, I was once filming a documentary, uh, an insert for a TV show on drag hunting. I don't know if you know what drag hunting is, but it's when all the riding clubs get together and uh, they sent a rag and they recreate the old-fashioned fox hunt. So they drag this rag through the forests and uh, then they release these hounds and the hounds go chasing after the scent and they smell it out and they're amazing, these, these amazing. And then the riders follow with the hounds and it's this huge event and it ends with champagne. It's, it's really a lot of fun, and no, no fox dies, so it's absolutely... So we're filming this story on drag hunting, and I go out to this farm and uh, where these hounds live, and I made the mistake of calling them dogs, and I got shot down. They are not dogs. These are hounds. And so I go to where they've built this pen, and it's quite far from the farmhouse, and I've got dogs. I love dogs. And uh, I look at this beautiful pen. It's, it's well done, and it's got kennels and everything for these hounds, and it's got caretakers all over the place, and, and they look at it. And I said to them, gee, why is the pen so far from the house? I mean, for me, I want my dogs by me. I want to go, you know. And they said, no, no, these hounds are not pets. You don't pet them, you don't treat them like pets. Um, and I was like, but they're so cute, and they're so beautiful, and they're so perfectly bred. I just wanted to go and hug them and tickle their tummies. They, uh, but I was not allowed to treat them like I treat my dogs at home. And uh, we start filming the interview with the breeder, and then something happened in the pen, and this fight broke out. And those that were once cute and cuddly became ugly and violent. Probably earlier that morning or the day before, one of these hounds had been wounded. And the rest of the pack of hounds set on that thing and tore it apart. And uh, I got such a fright and I just wanted to jump in and stop the dog fighters as they were just tearing apart this wounded hound. But nobody moved. Not the caretakers, not the breeder, not the owner. They stood there and they waited for the noise to subside. And then she said to me, because she could see I was affected by it, she said, that's what they do. The weakest hound is a liability to the pack and they remove that liability. Let's carry on with the interview. And this righteous injustice welled up inside of me and I was like, that's not right. That's what was in my heart. You see, there's this book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which is written by Annie Dillard. And it's a Pulitzer Prize winning book, you might know it. Annie uh, Dillard, she goes down and she sits next to uh, Tinder Creek, um, which is in the mountains of Virginia, and she uh, starts to write down what she sees. Uh, and what she observed frightened her. What she observed was absolutely horrible. 
emotionally and personally, she came to see what she already knew and what we already know from what we've read from life, from TV, wildlife documentaries. What she knew intellectually was that there's one principle by which nature operates, and that's power. The power of the strong over the weak, the power of the strong eating the weak, survival of the fittest, if you will. However you want to put it, she saw the evidence everywhere in nature, and she was particularly affected by watching this water bug land on a frog, and it injected this poison into the frog that liquefied the frog from the inside, and then she sucked the frog out. And that traumatized her for ages as she wrote this, this book. She realized, though, that's the principle by which nature works. Once she realized that this is how Mother Nature was, once she realized that she and all human beings are committed to act the way that nature acts, it's wrong that if strong people and strong nations or strong races pick on the weak, that's wrong. And yet, that's the only principle that Mother Nature knows. And once she realized that, she realized that there was a horrible choice before her. Either our idea that the strong should not eat the weak, our idea of justice is absolutely wrong, or else nature is unnatural. Nature is disordered. How can nature be disordered unless we have an unnatural means by which to judge it? A supernature, a supernatural by which we should be seeing life. How could the idea that the weak need to be protected be true unless there's something outside of nature? So many people I know believe the world is all there is, that there's no eternal, no supernatural, and there's no such thing as justice for the weak. And that's such a hopeless outlook. Annie Dillard says, either nature is broken, and the only way we can know it's broken is if there's an outside way by which we know it's broken. There's an outside justice of nature that says the weak need to be protected. Or we're insane and our ideas of justice are wrong and we are hopeless. But surely not. Hey? Therefore, the Bible makes perfect sense of how our heart feels. The Bible says that there is a king outside. This world is a wilderness. This world is desolate. This world is blighted. But there's a king outside. There is hope. You see, our hearts have been picking up like a radio picks up radio waves. Our hearts have been picking up his justice. Our only hope is that the king will come back and put everything right. And Isaiah says he will. Do you think you're crazy or do you believe that in your heart there's an outside king and he's coming back? You see, the, G, the king is Jesus Christ and he comes as a warrior shepherd. How is it even possible that a king would come back? It sounds tedious, but you actually need to go back and you need to read Isaiah 1 to 39 and see the historical context for Isaiah 40. There's nothing in there but judgment. You see, it was Isaiah's job to articulate, articulate the king's justice to uh, the great king, uh, to, to Israel. And if you read any of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you'll see 
so much of the prophets condemning the people for many things, for their oppression of the poor, for their greed, for their racial prejudice, later their sexual immorality, for not honoring the marriage, not lifting up the family. There were lists of all the things that the nation of Israel just kept getting wrong. You're doing it wrong, guys. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You can't do that. You're doing it wrong. And uh, all these things were wrong. But when you look at that entire list, if you put anybody up to that standard, you, you can feel pretty good about yourself if you hold up some of these statues, statutes. But if you look at the whole list, there's nothing actually there but condemnation. Nobody escapes the condemnation of justice of the king if you look at the whole picture. At the end of chapter 39, just a few verses before we pick up here at Isaiah 40, God's finally told Isaiah to go to the king of Judah and just say, guys, you're going to be taken away now. You're going to go into captivity. You're going into exile. You're going to Babylon. It's over. You know, that's where you're going now. And uh, oh, then suddenly, in Isaiah 40, there's this hope. There's this incredible note of hope. Suddenly, Isaiah starts to say, but I want you to be comforted, my people. You see, first of all, God still considered the people of Israel in this context, in the immediate context, the plight of the Jews, as his people. They're his people. We apply this to the church and to our own context today because the whole passage is a messianic prophecy and we are his people, the church. This is God's promise to us. Listen to it. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So secondly, it says, proclaim that her hard service. And this hard service is a difficult word to translate. It kind of means also struggle, that her conflict, her conflict, her struggle will be completed. In other words, what I'm going to put you through Israel is not permanent. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not just sending you away into exile. God's saying, what, what you are going through common ground in Cape Town. It's not permanent. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not just sending you away into this desolate wilderness. Why? Carries on to say, her sin has been paid for. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Is it saying her hard service is, her hard service is completed because God has punished her double for her sins? That's not what it says. Is there any place in the Bible that God says he's going to punish you double for your sins, double what you deserve, that he will give you two punishments? No. But it does say she has received from the Lord's hand not punishment, but payment. The word punishment's not there at all. It says she has received from the Lord's hand double payment. The reason why the exile will only be temporary, will only be a time of discipline, will only be finite, is because God himself has provided the payment for the sins, and that payment was double. That payment was more than enough. It's speaking in prison language. Jerusalem's sentence for her sins has been more than served. So let's go to verses 10 and 11. See, the sovereign Lord Sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and is recomposed. It accompanies him. 
He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs up in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. When the king shows up, look at this picture in verse 10. We see that he's a sovereign lord with his arm. He's a warrior. He comes with power and his arm rules for him. But what is that arm doing? He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs up in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. This is the king we know is there. The reason why when we see the weak being trampled down, even though nature says that's natural, even though nature says that's practical, even though everything in this world says that's practical, we know that there's a king who cares for the weak. We know that there's a king who exercises his power by providing for the littlest. And here he is, the warrior shepherd. That's why we're not afraid. The answer is in verse 10. See, his reward is with him. He's coming not with my reward. He's coming with his reward, his recompense, his compensation. What in the world could God's reward be? What do you get the man who's got everything? God owns the stars and the mountains. He owns the nations. So what would make God feel wealthy? What would God look at and say, this is my treasure. These are my jewels. This is my wealth. What is he looking at? He's looking at his flock. It's the little ones. It's the weak ones. It's not survival of the fittest. This is astounding. This is the immense grace of God. How could this be? How could the warrior be the shepherd? How could the king be absolutely just, who must put down all justice and evil, and still he looks on us with all our weaknesses and, and our flaws, and he says to us, you are the wealth. The stars are nothing compared to you. They're dust in the scales. Isaiah 40 says, the mountains are nothing, the oceans are nothing, the galaxies are nothing compared to what I see when I look at you. How could this be? Here is where you see the power and the tenderness of God come together. There's this dark night, and Jesus is with his disciples in a garden, and suddenly they're surrounded by soldiers, and his disciples love him, and Peter grabs a sword, and he starts to take it out, and Jesus says, don't do that, stop that, don't do that. So the pitiful idea of power trying to draw a sword. Don't you know that I could call on my father who would send down legions of angels? Do you realize I have the strength? Put that sword away, for goodness sake. Do you know that I could click my fingers and everybody would be dead? I have the strength enough to be weak. I have the majesty enough to be meek. I'm laying my life down for my sheep. When he says, I've given double payment, he means, I haven't just given you bare minimum. I haven't just gotten you off the hook. I haven't just given you enough salvation to pardon your sins. I haven't just given you enough. I've given you more grace than is needed. I'm not just giving you barely enough. There is so much more love. There is so much more honor that it doesn't just wipe away sins. It welcomes you into my arms. I don't just see you as pardoned sinners. I see you as my jewels. My salvation is so incredibly and completely abundant. 
See, the answer is in Jesus Christ. So many Christ followers don't understand the unbelievable grace that comes with salvation. They believe that Jesus died for their sins, meaning they were pardoned. That means they believe Jesus just barely gave us enough salvation, so we're not going to go to hell or be lost or, or whatever. But now it's up to us. We better live a good life. But you see, it's like you were on death row and the president pardons you, right? And in all the excitement, you get out of the prison and, and now you're free and you go into society and then suddenly you realize, but hold on, there's still this big cloud hanging over my head. People don't come up to you and go, oh, you're that guy that did all those terrible things. Uh, don't you want to come over to supper? How about you come and work in my company? Don't you want to marry my daughter, you guy who got pardoned after doing all those terrible things? No. You might have been pardoned, but you have not been accepted. You're not liable for your bad record, but you still do not have a good record. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ did not just die the death you should have died, but he lived the life you should have lived. And the Bible says his great and perfect record is then accredited to you when you believe, so that when God treats you the way Jesus should be treated. It's not just the salvation of Jesus that gets you off and now you try and live a better life in order for God to bless you. But God now sees you as a jewel. Hey, man, God sees you as a jewel. Just let that sink. If you're needing affirmation right now, if you're not getting it from the places you're seeking it, from your work, from your spouse, from your children, from uh, the, the achievements that you're trying to gain in life, if you're seeking affirmation, just hear this right now. God sees you as a jewel. You're his compensation. You're his reward. Where am I? <laughs> he rejoices in you. Let's look here. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. A quick tangent though. If we are totally accepted by grace, do we still have to obey? People are confused by this. I know I'm accepted, but surely I still have to obey. And I think the reason, you know, if I think the reason I need to obey the rules is so that God will bless me and take me to heaven and answer my prayers, if that's the motivation for my obedience, you don't realize that you're actually not obeying God at all. You're using Him. You're trying to get leverage of Him. You're not obeying out of the joyful gratitude of what He's done, just out of the delight of who He is. If you're saying, I better not do this or, or do that out of fear, unless you see yourself as His jewel, you'll be crushed by the fear of his kingship. Or if you're actually doing well in your own eyes, if you're self-deceived, if you feel smug or entitled, then clearly you don't understand what he did for you that day on the cross. But because we appreciate what he's done, and because we feel cherished, because he cherishes us, we obey out of love, and it's all we want to do. So what hope is there because of our flaws? The answer is in the warrior shepherd. The answer is through Jesus Christ because he is both. He is the king who is justice for the weak. So number three, how do we respond? We respond with obedience. We respond by not worrying and we respond with hope. At the very end it says, 
Those who hope in, some translations say, wait upon the Lord, renew their strength. The answer to the question, how do we live out the hope we have? How do we practice the kingship of God? The answer is hope. <clears throat> the reason the word hope is so pregnant is because it means these three things. Firstly, to hope means to wait. To hope means to wait. To wait is to obey, like ladies in waiting. You're not treating him as king unless you say, not my will, but yours be done. In every area, every mountain down, every valley raised up, nothing held back. You're not treating him as king unless you're willing to say, not my will, but thine be done in every area. Elizabeth Elliot said, the hardest thing to give is in. <coughs> The hardest thing to give is in. It's easy to give this and you can give that, you can give money, but you need to give up the right to determine how your life should be lived, given to God. Secondly, to hope means to relax. Hope means your schedule, Lord, not mine. Hope means not just I accept your laws for my life. Hope means I accept your ordering of my history. I accept the fact that I don't know what's best. I humble myself underneath you. So I'm going to stop worrying. Stop worrying. Worry, anxiety, and fear always mean if I were in charge of history, I would do a better job. Give history to God. When you humble yourself under the Lord of history, you can relax now. Thirdly, hope means hope. Hope means expectancy. Hope means if it's really true that the lordship of Christ is a healing influence, then I'm not treating God as king unless I have high expectations of what he can do through me. If you're a pessimist in South Africa, in your workplace, in your marriage, if you're not, you, then you're not treating him as king. Are you a pessimist? Do you look at the problems in your family, in our government, in issues of poverty, in the problems of unbelief, your own, those around you? Do you look at the problems in your own life, in your own psyche, and you say, well, this is just the way it is. This is just the way it's always going to be. Do you realize that when you do that, you're not treating him as king? John Newton in his hymn says, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such no one can ever ask too much. <coughs> Hope in the Lord. If you do, he will renew your strength in 2020. If your conscience is clear through obedience, if your discernment is humbled through relaxation, and if your hope is kindled, your heart will be liberated. Let's look at how this passage ends. Let's look at the order of the last few verses. Does it say... They will walk and not grow faint. They will run and not grow weary. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will soar on eagles' wings. No, it's the other way around. Do you see where the climax is? But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Do you see where the climax is? The climax is in walking which I love because it makes me think that God's actually a trail runner. <laughs> I love running in the mountains. But what I've learned over the years of running in the mountains is it's actually all about endurance. It's about getting to the end. 
And sometimes I'll start a run or start a race and I'm soaring and I'm, I'm in a place of blessing and I'm strong and I'm feeling it and I, I, I feel great and I'm soaring. And then as I get going, pretty soon I realize now actually I'm just running. I'm, I'm not soaring, I'm running. And, and I'm, getting, I'm getting tired. Um, and, and I'm losing some of that energy. My breathing's getting heavier. I'm getting weary. And then I hit the uphill. I hit the ascent. I'm on the mountain now. And the steps are getting higher. And, and it's hot. And, and my muscles are aching. And my mind is tired. And I still have a long way to go. And I'm walking. You see, walking is the point. My mind is focused on the finish line. Sometimes you'll soar, but you won't always soar, but you will always be able to walk. Did you hear that for 2020? You will always be able to walk. You will always be able to get through everything. Did you hear that? If you're not able to get through things, if you're not able to endure 2020, you're not practicing the kingship of Christ. Either you're not seeing the full picture of his salvation and that you're a jewel, so you can really sense how much you're loved, or your conscience is not clear, or you're worrying, or you're trying to take control of your life, or you lack hope. Treat him as king, and you will always be able to walk. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, no one can ever ask too much. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, help us to understand that there is a king, that you are coming. Help us to be so expectant. We don't have to be afraid, thanks to the grace that fully restores us. Help us to understand that healing happens when we obey, when we relax, when we hope, when we expect as we know how much the King cares for us and loves the weak. We want your healing power, Lord, to rush through our hearts and our lives and our country in 2020. You are the God of hope. We love you, Lord.